Welcome in Rose City to Soccer Made in Portland. I'm Ryan Clark, joined by Chris Reifer. Been a long layoff for this podcast with uh, not a whole lot happening in between, but plenty to talk about either way uh, on this podcast today uh, on the Timbers and Thorns. Obviously, you know, both are in the midst of their off seasons with a handful of storylines that have popped Emphasis up over the last off. month. Yes, yes. Off this is taking... like the offest off season so far. There's some serious <laughs> offing going on. Yeah. So, so beginning obviously with the Timbers. Um, you know, last time we we were on this podcast, we were discussing the recent hire of Phil Neville as as the new head coach of the Timbers. Obviously, that came with its share of controversy and criticism from people in the soccer community and and in the public and outside of it. Um, and since then, the the news has been relatively, if not Completely. extremely sparse. <laughs> uh, in terms Neville's of been, off been off doing like Premier League, uh, Premier League, you know, studio work. Other than that, just everybody's offing. Yeah, and I can confirm that uh, that Neville did meet with the Timbers Army uh, as he promised after their that's, that's criticism good. of what he did. So that was a positive step forward, I think, and and was something that you know is important for him to do is connect with this community as he takes on this uh, this leadership role within within the Timbers organization. Um, since then, uh, no major moves in terms of the Timbers. Obviously, they they let a handful of players go with the roster updates, uh, some of whom were expected. Some, you know, it's unfortunate that they didn't maybe get a second look at, at a young age. I think of names like Noel Kaliskin, uh, sort of moving on, um, maybe not up to the level of the type of players that they're looking for in the future. But, you know, you you invest some time in a player. It's always unfortunate to for for fans to see them go. Um, and, and Sebastian Blanco is the big headliner, obviously leaving the Timbers after six and a half years. Um, somebody who leaves a really strong legacy with the club and someone who is beloved by fans and, and many of whom did not want to see him go in this fashion. They wanted sort of the, the swan song that, that Blanco believed he deserved, that fans believed he deserved. And, um, you know, it didn't happen. And that's, you know, that's sometimes the business, but at the, at the same time, it's, it is interesting. And I think noteworthy that it ended this way and that the two sides couldn't come to some sort of agreement on, on a lower salary to, to bring him back for one more year. You know, so this is actually one in which I will sort of come to the defense of the Timbers front office. Uh, me noted timbers front office stan and club shill uh will actually come to their defense uh on, on this point i think this is a hard situation for, for everybody involved and mls in particular makes this very hard uh this is a, a situation that we've seen sort of play out across the league the sounders just did with uh nico lodero parting ways with him uh before nico was ready to be done playing uh because of similar circumstances, Dax McCarty, there are a number that you can point to across the league of this happening, but it's just a challenging situation for both player and club, right? I, I mean, the reasonable expectations for what Seba was going to be able to contribute in 2024 are pretty low. I mean, he played hundreds and not that many hundreds of minutes in 2023. He was not bad, but I mean, far, 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 far from where he was 
when he was at his peak uh, in terms of contribution in those minutes. And I think you could only project sort of a further slide down the hill in 2024 because that's just how time works. Uh, And so from the Timbers perspective in a cap league where they have limited resources to use, I mean, is there any way you could justify paying him more than a couple or $300,000 next year, just based on just based purely on uh, his output. And that's even accounting for sort of the, the, the clubhouse benefits of having a guy like him. I, I don't think I could, um, especially given the other demands that the Timbers have on their salary cap structure for next year. And at the same time, if you put yourself in Seba's shoes, this is a guy who has sacrificed a lot, a lot to be able to play even what he has been able to play the last couple of years. He's a guy who uh, last year was making uh, about 1.5 million uh, in, in salary. We know he was a max Tam kind of guy, and that's where that range falls a little bit higher than that. Even uh, he's a guy who at the peak of his contract with the Timbers was making, I think over, a little bit over $2 million. And how, how would it feel for him? to get offered a 250 or $300,000 contract for next year. If I like a, if I was Seba, I would feel like that's a slap in the face, especially given everything he's contributed to the club over his time here, which is really significant. Uh, and, and given the amount he has sacrificed to be able to contribute even as much as he has over the course of the last couple of years, that feels like a slap in the face. And frankly, if, if I was him, and I was looking at all those sacrifices, looking all, all, at all the time that I had to put into getting my body ready to play, looking at all of just literally the physical pain that I have to go through to, to play. And somebody said, hey, we'll offer you a couple hundred grand to do it again next year. I probably would think really hard about whether that was even worth it. You know, he's, he's made good money over the course of his career. That's not a lot. Uh, and, and so I think it would be very fair. And I totally understand why he would say, I'm not interested in doing that. It would be nice if in MLS's structure, there was more of a way, a greater ability for teams to be able to, you know, sort of have contracts where they could carry players out of respect for and the desire to keep them in the club in the later stages of, of their career. Um, I, I mean my perspective on MLS uh, salary cap rules, which is apparently different than the MLS board of governors uh, is that they should be pretty dramatically opening up their rules. But in, in the current state, there's just no way to do that. Oh, especially when you're in the timber situation where you need to be leveraging every single dime you possibly can of your salary cap resources to try to improve a roster that's failed the last two years. Right. And and I think that there is a duality in this situation that you touched on, right? It's the idea that, you know, I, I think that the Timbers and Ned Grabovoy deserve credit for doing the hard and necessary thing to to try and do what they've talked about doing, which is sort of re, retooling this team in a way that will allow them to compete again and, and to get into the postseason and do more than just get into the postseason is, is what Ned Grabovoy talked about, what Phil Neville talked about, um, and, and what they have aspired to and spoken about building now whether or not they fulfill that is up to them right it's this off season it's the following transfer windows it's it's a process that isn't going to happen overnight by any means but this is very much one of those periods in which you have to make some serious 
moves to do that. I, I think that a signal that maybe one of those type of moves could be on the semi near horizon is the idea that they traded away their MLS super draft first round pick for yeah. 125 G's <laughs> 120, and 50 of it is in 2025. I mean, yeah. you know, I, that, that's, that's, we're not interested in drafting. We'll take what we can get. Yeah. Money is money. And so maybe that's a signal, but that's the only thing we have to <laughs> work that on is, right now. Those right? are thin straws to be grasping at in terms right. of, uh, of what they're doing. I mean, the, the headline for the Timbers yeah. is that there is no headline. Uh, Look, I, I think the precedent for this offseason uh, in Timbers MLS history is the offseason between 2012 and 2013. Uh, that was the last time that Timbers failed to make the playoffs two years in a row. That was the last time that I think there really was sort of a really major roster reset that needed to be done. Uh, I think Ned Ned Grabovoy would say, well, this, is, this isn't that significant. But at the bottom, the bottom line is this was a bad team two years in a row. Uh, and so to the extent that they're minimizing the extent of the roster changes that need to happen, that's cause for concern in its own right. But that to me is the, the precedent that I look to in terms of the work that the Timbers need to get done over the course of this offseason. And here's the thing. As of this date, December 20th, 2012, the Timbers had signed will johnson they'd signed ryan johnson they traded for ryan johnson uh they had uh they had traded for michael harrington uh they had already been connected to and moved on from mixed disc and they were days literally days away from being connected to diego valeri by this point that was a rebuild that happened with direction. That was a rebuild that happened with forethought. That was a rebuild where they had a plan and they went out and they executed that plan diligently. What have the Timbers done so far in this 2023 offseason? Off and the answer is bupkis. The answer is bupkis. They've done bupkis. They're more or less at the midterm of this offseason. They have an F because they've done nothing. They have not made any meaningful addition to the roster. Any. And, I mean, to put a fine point on this, if 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 this offseason fails like the last one did, Ned Gravoy is not going to have a job this time next year, right? I mean, that'll be three years in a row out of the playoffs. That'll be multiple offseasons in which they've needed to do something and they've failed. It, I mean, that's just that's just the reality. Phil Neville might not have a job this time next year if this offseason fails and i think when you look at the way the timbers have in the past acted in these situations when you look at other teams in mls who are in similar situations they're all making moves like even the colorado rapids are making moves the colorado rapids are making moves <laughs> and and we've seen nothing from the Timbers. And that's not to say that they can't, you know, to go back to the class analogy, that's not to say that they can't in the second half of the semester, uh, you know, rebound, uh, that they can't maybe pull pull a great final out of their tuchus and, and, uh, and you know, uh, make some great signings in January and, and uh, have the team in a good spot. But, I mean, in light of the history, in light of the Timbers' struggles early in the season and the problems that they've had with trying to build the plane in flight the last several years, but especially the last couple of years, um, that F at the midterm is really worrying. Uh, and I, I think you don't see signs, other signs, that there is a plan in place. I mean, it, frankly, it, it's it's concerning to me uh, that 
in the preseason press or excuse me, in the uh, immediate sort of postseason press conference, they were more definitive about uh, the the uh, the likelihood of moving on from Jimmy Chara than they are now. Uh, whereas before he was sort of expected to leave, uh, the most recent reporting that we've seen is he will leave if the right move presents itself. Well, let's be honest. Given what we've seen from Jimmy Chara and his his occupancy of a DP spot and their inability to sign a DP, a senior DP, unless they move on from him, the right move is whatever move is necessary to get him off of the timber salary cap <laughs> and to open that DP spot. It's 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 amnestying him if necessary. And so the fact that there's uncertainty about that at this point is very much suggestive of the fact that they don't have a plan, that they're trying to figure it out now, which blows my mind. Blows my mind. Because it, the fact that they were going to have to make significant changes this offseason is not like new. That's not something that like, oh, popped up at the end of the season. That was clear throughout basically the entirety of the season that this was, it was going... clear when they fired Gio. Yeah, yeah it was I clear mean... when they fired Gio Savarese. It was clear before that when they were struggling uh, and, and muddling through at the bottom of the table. Like, I mean, th- this is a process that should have been months in the making. And that's why t- the, that 2012-2013 rebuild was able to happen so quickly because it was months in the making. And we see no signs of that right now. Maybe they're, you know, maybe they're 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 holding it all for for something. But there are no signs of it right now, and I think it's cause for serious concern. And the Coachella Valley Invitational is the first sort of marker, right, of the preseason, February fourth through the seventeenth, uh, down there in Indio. Um, was there last year? Um, there hadn't really been major moves made beyond Evander at that point, and then after Coachella uh, was when they traded Bill to Iloma, and that was pretty much it for last offseason that sort of offseason um doesn't meet the sort of standards that they have laid out right they they in their view right in the in the view that they have laid out to the public that would be that type of offseason i mean bringing in a major player like evander like another evander type of player would be a big deal but that type of offseason even in itself by the standards which Ned Grabavoy and others D-. have laid out, it is is not enough to to bring them up to the level that they aspire to be at. Now, as I said before, like these type of things don't happen in one off season or one transfer window. But they can. But you do have to. But they can, and the, and you do have to. I think lay the sort of foundation on which you aim to build the other pieces. Now we don't know what is going on behind the scenes right now with Ned Grabavoy and company, um, Ned Merritt Paulson and the others who are involved in the different, um, decisions that are being made behind the scenes right now for the club. Um, they haven't had a press conference since, since, uh, Neville was hired and, um, communication on that front with insiders, with, you know, people like me with newsbreakers has been, pretty minimal in terms of the the discussion beyond 
Um, I mean, poor Tom Bogart has broken the same news like three times about the Timbers. <laughs> At this point, that's been the sort of the same story a couple times in a row. Um, the the roster updates I do think are worth touching on, like the the folks who have left. Even though obviously we're talking about additions right now, we're talking about the changes and and the things that that folks believe are necessary to improve the team. Um, they picked up the option on Nathan Fagasa, which I think is a, is a wise move. Um, he's a guy that that has shown serious potential, but hasn't quite made it up to the level of being a, a consistent MLS contributor. Did very well on his loan in San Antonio um, back there, playing for a team that he had a lot of success with before at the USL level. So that was good for him. They declined the options on Brian Acosta, Frank Bolli, uh, Noel Kaliskin, Diego Gutierrez, Eric Miller, Yaroslav Nishkoda, and Justin Rasmussen. The only ones who they are in negotiation with out of a group of departees are Acosta, Miller, and then David Bingham, who's out of contract. Um, that's a lot of subtraction of guys that either were contributors or were the sort of player that you expected to maybe take another step uh, and, and get into to that opportunity zone as a player. Diego Gutierrez is one that's particularly surprising to me because Gio and others around the organization were talking about him maybe being a starter at the start of last season. And that, that taking a tailspin, knowing what I know about Diego and his work ethic and knowing what I know about the the Timbers' willingness to sort of keep those young guys around in the past and try to kick the tires. Um, that's surprising. Kaliskan is surprising, um, just given that he really only had one year to sort of adjust to everything. Um, Bully, not all that surprising. I, I think that he was somebody that was at a bit of, of a high salary number compared to his production. The writing was pretty um, well on the wall when Felipe Moreau yeah. really sort of seized that position by the end of the year. Especially with the possibility of bringing in a, a young DP as either a number nine or a, a winger that can play at the, at the number nine spot. That, that's all theoretical right now but extremely the, theoretical but the uh the the subtractions i mean looking at all of those what what is sort of your you know thousand foot view i don't see a whole lot of surprise in there you know i mean the, the, those sorts of young players there is just naturally a decent amount of of rostered or churn and turnover um i think gutierrez and, and Kaliskin had some solid performances over the course of the year but did they do anything that made me think they are very likely to be part of, you know, the rotation next year? No, I wouldn't say that for either. And so I'm not shocked that I, I, I think there's just kind of a decent amount of churn and maybe hopefully uh, for both of those guys, they'll, they'll turn up somewhere and, and, and uh, hopefully be able to, to make a career at an, at another spot. Um, but that's kind of just how it goes. Not surprised at all with Bowley, uh, given the 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 role that he played. I think he was okay. I think he was a, a an okay signing. Uh, he contributed for them in certain times, uh, but he was pretty clearly by the end of the year their second best number nine. Uh, and in an off season in which they're looking to improve that position, if you're the second best number nine at that you know at that position, you're probably not coming back, especially if you cost a decent amount of money. So I think that's that's you know sort of just the slam dunk there, and you know I I, I think uh, it's not surprising to me that Brian Acosta they declined his option. His option almost certainly would have had him be in the TAM range again as he was last year. Uh, he his 
sort of role in the team and play doesn't justify that. That said, if there is an ability to to bring him back, you know, as sort of a depth piece in that central midfield mix, uh, I think that makes a lot of sense. And so that's a guy who who I think is worth keeping an eye on to see if they're able to agree to terms, but it's going to be at a lower salary number uh, than he was at before. He came in uh, at Colorado as a DP. I mean, kind of a Colorado Rapids DP, uh, which is to say, compared to the rest of the league, a fake DP. Uh, but, but you know, he, he, he was on a pretty high salary number uh, that I think the Timbers couldn't justify carrying into 2024. Uh, and Bingham and Miller uh, hopefully are going to be, uh, if they can bring them back, solid depth. Those are two good solid depth pieces so you you need players like that on your roster so i think the goal would be to bring them back on salaries that make sense for that uh, but if you're going into the season sort of penciling those guys into your starting 11 i mean i i think you those are the kinds of moves that the timbers need to be making uh that if they're not able to make and they're thinking they're starting the season with those guys as as starters even part-time starters while they're still figuring things out. Uh, I think that those are exactly the kinds of instances in which you would be calling this a failed off season and then say that they have failed to get the business done that they said they wanted to get done and needed to get done in order to have the team in place together and ready to go when things kick off for real in late February. Let's shift gears to the Thorns, who are in the midst of their own offseason right now, and one that is a, a seismic one, I think, for, for the I mean, team and, and how things have, have shifted. Um, you know, obviously the ownership change is the big thing hanging over everything and could in many ways be stymieing some of the other aspects. We don't know that for sure, but it's a big thing that's hanging over all of this, right? Is, is the shift over to what is now expected to be the Bethal family investors in the NBA Sacramento Kings. Um, plenty of, of money to throw around there with, with their investments. And we'll talk a little more about, about that uh, in, in the second half of this discussion. But the start of it, I'd, I'd like to talk about the moves that that have been made for the Thorns. So Emily Mangus and Hannah Betford uh, traded to Bay FC and to the Utah Royals respectively uh, for salary money, or excuse me, for um, allocation, what, what they money. Call it? allocation <laughs> money and, and all the different types of monies. Uh, so only one were, type of allocation money to my, to my knowledge in, in NWSL, but Hey, as yeah. analysts has showed all sorts of types of allocation money you can create right. going forward. Right. And, and they're, I think, going to get rid of that or something is, is the plan for NWSL. But who knows what, especially with the salary I, cap I, I right now. I hope you like saw what, the, the Twitter exchange this week where, because it was reported out that NWSL was moving toward, you know, a more open, higher salary cap, but fewer mechanisms uh, sort of structure. <laughs> and the MLS Players Association retweeted that was sort of like the thinking phase, like, hmm, interesting. Uh, so <laughs> good job, NWSL, uh, in many ways, much more forward thinking than MLS is. Right. And um, so so those trades were made in order primarily to receive protection in the in the expansion draft. Um which is interesting because those are, are two players in Mangus and Batford who folks talked about as possibilities of being picked in, in that expansion draft, but it protects other players whom the Thorns believed were at risk of, of being picked and who they, they may want to bring back uh, and have in more prominent roles than maybe Mangus, who is toward the tail end of her career, and Batford, who I think had some strong stretches last season, but hasn't quite risen to the level of being a, a steady contributor 
for for the thorns um obviously both beloved by fans both with different sort of um different personalities and different uh storylines sort of swirling around them obviously um the Mangus move is is has a unique storyline and that the the reen wilkinson saga that happened last year is an unavoidable thing to talk about um that likely had little to nothing to do with this move at all um she was somebody who maintained a, a strong relationship with a lot of the folks in that locker room uh and is is somebody that is is loved in the portland community Mangus did a, a great job connecting with people through her newspaper too uh the bell esprit project I, I think was was awesome um you know, I got a chance to to read that on a relatively regular basis. So shout out to Mangus for doing the journalisms, and and then Betford, um, somebody that was also a strong locker room presence and really is, was just a hilarious personality to to be around uh, at Thorns training. Um, very unique and um, passionate individual. So so both of those players, I think, will get good opportunities elsewhere, um, but. It's it's another story as as with the Timbers where there has been subtraction but not addition, right? There's been this subtraction in order to avoid the expansion draft, but we look around the NWSL, uh, we see Gotham basically throwing, yeah, throwing buckets of money at at uh, at high level talent <laughs> right now to to build out a roster that already won the the championship this year. Um, and other teams in NWSL investing a lot of money in, in their players, Houston being one of them. Um, you know, it's, it's a lot is happening around the league and this is pretty early in the off season, but players are coming important. off the board. Pl- players are coming off the board. And frankly, the thorns have to be careful even with the external sort of factor of the sale happening and maybe it limiting their abilities. They have to be careful not to be passed up by the rest of the league because the the standard has been set for years by the thorns as, as the epitome of, of what it means to contend and build outstanding rosters and bring in high quality individuals to this team. Right. The three championships did not happen by accident. These teams were built systemically and very meticulously over the years to to contend and to be the most talented rosters in the league. And and right now they are behind the eight ball uh, when it, it compares to some of the other teams in the league. And they have to sort of find that way to to maintain the foundation and the culture that they've built and sell that to high level players because they they can't sort of just take away from what they had last year and then semi retool and hope to contend next year. I, I think that there's just too much talent in the NWSL, particularly uh, with two new teams being added into the mix. And as we know, expansion teams are no slouches. San Diego wave proved that um, in, in contending the way they did their first year. So that th- this is, this is big. This is, as we've talked about before, um, you know, this, this has the potential to be a make or break for the thorns. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I do want to back up for a moment, uh, and, uh, to give some shouts to Emily Mingus, who over her long career in Portland, uh, I think was at times even fairly considered part of the cornerstone of the club, including in, in some very successful years, uh, uh, one of the most consistent uh, Intel injuries sort of caught up uh, one of the most consistent uh, defenders in the league, uh, frankly, an in pin starter 
in the back line for a long, long time. Uh, that speaks, uh, I think, not only to her quality as a soccer player, but also to her professionalism and her work ethic. Uh, and and she was a, just very simply put, tremendous thorn uh, over the course of her time in Portland. And so the best of wishes to her going forward. Uh, you know, my everything I have ever heard uh, about the unfortunate situation with, with Rean Wilkinson, uh, there was never any element of Emily Menges did anything wrong. Um, and I think that's important to keep in mind. I, I agree with you. It is kind of like unavoidable context for something like this, but there's a difference between what is an unfortunate situation or an uncomfortable situation and a situation in which somebody did something wrong. And I have never seen anything to, in, to indicate that Emily Menges did anything wrong in that instance. Yeah, it's been something that has been maintained by by everybody surrounding that situation and and doesn't merit additional real conversation yeah, because frankly we're talking about people and their their lives and right. and about about love, okay? So this is this is something that goes beyond the little, you know, miniature dramas of playing on a soccer team. Yeah. And and so, you know, I I think when when Thorns fans think about Emily Menges, I think they will and they should think about her quality and her contributions to the club. That is, that is her legacy here. Uh, and they were very, very good and they're deserving of, of a tremendous amount of respect, uh, for what she did for the team, uh, over the course of her, her long tenure in Portland. And so best wishes to her, uh, as she, uh, as, as she is pursuing her next ventures. I hope, uh, I hope frankly that she's able to sort of get back on the field with regularity and sort of put that in that, that the injuries that have sort of limited her and brought her in and out over the last couple of years behind her and kind of, uh, have a little bit of a renaissance. I think that's a possibility. Uh, but, uh, you know, it, it, it will now not be in Portland, um, which comes with an element of sadness, but probably opportunity, I think, as well for her. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I did want to sort of pause uh, on that note because I think it's worth discussing uh, and and acknowledging the her, her significant contributions over the course of her time here. Uh, with respect to the Thorns, I mean, the headline is kind of similar <laughs> with the Timbers. Uh, one thing that we should also note they, uh, that is is meaningfully different from the Timbers and is, I think, a meaningful uh, point going forward is that the Thorns reached a contract extension with Hina Sugita. Oh, uh, that's that's good. I mean, Sugita is an important part uh, of the team. She can be an important part of a good team going forward. It is important to, to lock players like Hina down. My hope, my hope, my hope, my hope for her in coming years is that the thorns find a role for her and stick to it. Uh, I, I think she has been limited to a significant extent by her, by using her as, as kind of a utility player playing on the wing, playing, you know, in a, in a two way role in central midfield, playing in a more attacking role in central midfield. I think finding Sugita a role will benefit her significantly in terms of her contribution. Uh, it's just hard to be really impactful and consistently impactful and tactically disciplined as a utility player. And I get why there is an impulse to play somebody like Sugita as a utility player. Just her, her sort of set of skills means that you can put her in a number of spots, but just because you can doesn't mean you should. And I think some clarity uh, of role going forward would really benefit Sugita. And I think it would really benefit the thorns uh, as they, as they move forward. But if you want to talk about an important, player to lock down in light of the departure of Crystal Dunn, Hina Sagita became pretty critical. And so it's good news that they were able to, to reach that contract extension. The bad news is that they've done 
bupkis else. Uh, and that's a real problem. I mean, we've seen, we're seeing big free agents either get on the one yard line or over the line in terms of signing contracts with other clubs. Pretty much all of them with Gotham. Yeah, to, a to lot be, of them with Gotham. Fair. I mean, yeah. just today, Savannah McCaskill going to the the San Diego Wave. The rich get richer there too. I mean, that is another team with whom the Thorns are very competitive or were very competitive uh, at the top of the table. That's getting better. The Thorns aren't, uh, and I think that's really worrying. I, I think you can't ignore the context of of the the the, the sale, the looming sale. Uh, I think it is totally fair to ask about whether there is direction in light of that or if they are sort of just caught in stasis while everybody moves forward. And I think it's perfectly reasonable to worry uh, about how that will affect the Thorns' effectiveness going forward. I think it's even more reasonable to be borderline panicking uh, about what that means for the Thorns' ability to reach a contract extension with Sophia Smith. Um, and I think these are all things that as every day goes by, Thorns fans are fairly getting more anxious uh, about all of these questions. Because here's the reality, and, and I think this is probably a reality that if the Bethal family isn't thinking about now, they will be soon. But if they're not able to retain Sophia Smith, uh, if they're not able to sign some free agents, the product on the field is is going to get worse quickly. Like, next year they're not going to be as competitive they're going to be i think you would probably project them as a borderline playoff team and with some downside there too uh and there is going to be a transition uh to the new ownership that transition will be harder if the team is not producing on the field everything and about that trans- it will be harder and that transition is is likely to happen well into the season too because this sale is not yet concluded um it all signs point to the bethals being the ones to to make this purchase it's it's i can say confidently that is what is going to happen yeah. right is is that is this sale is going to happen to the bethals uh and that said we've got some recent precedent in portland for you know you're not in the end zone until you're in the end zone right and and so that transition as was reported thoroughly by meg linehan who did did a tremendous job in her story recently about this um that transition is going to inevitably stretch into the to the regular season schedule because the the nwsl season essentially starts in late march and so if you're closing this sale in let's say february which is by all indications a a potential possibility right could be sooner but yeah that's reasonable could be could be sooner but let's say it's february that gives you one month between that and and the start of the season to make that transition not enough time and and to peregrine's credit to to the credit of the people who are making this sale they have committed according to meg's reporting to to you know assisting with that transition and keeping staff on that are employed by them to allow that to happen more smoothly and not just sort of cleave off from the thorns and then say here you go bethal family go go build an entire front office and soccer structure out of thin air um that that I think is important. And I think that the idea that Karina LeBlanc will stay on as GM is interesting. Um, at least that's according to, to what the reporting looks like, right? Is that she will, at least in the interim, at least in the time between now and when the transition ends, she will remain the, the GM. Uh, what she does with that time is obviously important and something that 
fans are continuing to keep an eye on um, as the rest of NWSL loads up. And the reality is, is that the challenge of the Bethel family, not even even sort of setting aside the sort of personnel transitions uh, that are going to take some months, uh, even setting that aside, I mean, the job that they're going to have going forward, they have a number of things they need to address, right? They need to figure out Sophia Smith's long-term future. They need to figure out a training facility. But as maybe as big as those two uh, and and a longer term project is they need to rebuild connections with the fan base. They need to rebuild connections with partners, uh, with sponsors. Uh, and those are all really critical things for the long term health and and vi- and not viability, but uh, but but sort of success of the club. And all of that is easier if you have success on the field. And so if they're trying to do all of that while the team on the field is taking a significant step back, which looks like very much a possibility, maybe even a probability at this point, that becomes harder. And so, yeah, I mean, those are all the things that are rattling around in my head uh, right now. But as every free agent comes off the board, every time there's another signing and they're happening at a rate of multiple per day right now that a major free agent either comes off the board or is reported to be close to a deal with usually Gotham. <laughs> uh, I, I, I think the anxiety level very reasonably increases and then questions start to come up about <laughs> whether it's desirable uh, for Karina LeBlanc to stay in that role. I think like Ned Grabovoy is, is GMing for his job right now. I think Karina LeBlanc is GMing for her job right now. And We've seen similar out production from both to this point in the offseason, which is to say, Bupkis. Uh, and and if that Bupkis continues much longer, I think they're they're both going to be in very very perilous positions. So the Bethal family, obviously nearing nearing this purchase, um, you know, fans are fans are curious about who these people are, what their sort of background is, why they care about the Thorns, why they're investing, um, and and going to likely become the owners here in Portland, uh, taking over for Peregrine for Merritt Paulson. Um, they are people who have invested heavily in the Sacramento Kings. Um, they're capital firm essentially invested almost a i don't know if that's the right term but invested almost a billion private equity sure yeah they uh (laughs) they invested one billion dollars in the king's arena and the surrounding real estate they have major investments in real estate around the country particularly in opportunity zones which is something that has been discussed in in political circles has been debated um the idea of investing in those areas and and the ramifications in terms of gentrification is something that the Bethals have talked about that they have, I'm sure, over the years received criticism for. But it, it's it's a big portion of sort of how they have made their money on on the investment front over the last several years. It, it originally began with Raj Bathal, uh, the patriarch of the family, emigrating to the U.S. from India in 1960, starting a swimwear company alongside his wife, Marta. Um, and in 2006, uh, the their two children bought out the company uh, and started this, this Raj Capital Managing Partners, right? And so this 
this investment firm, this this venture capital um, sort of situation has has led to primarily real estate investment um, for the Bethals, and then now sports is is a huge sector for them. The Kings is is uh, the biggest example that we have of investment in in sports, and they have invested a lot of money. And it may not be personal wealth as much as it is through the the firm, but either way, to have access to that level of funds is something that I think is um, decidedly different than what has been the case in Portland over the last several years. Um, much of Merritt Paulson and Hank Paulson's net worth, um, Hank's net worth is different than Merritt's net worth. Let's just say that. So, so Hank's net worth is is what makes him the majority owner in Peregrine Sports, right? Merritt's net worth is is primarily the uh, rising valuation of the two teams that he currently owns, primarily the Timbers, who are worth significantly more than the Thorns are. That level of investment, when you talk to people around the club um, who have been players, who have worked on the business side, that level of investment simply just has not been able to be there in ways that it maybe should have over the years. Right? I mean, that's they their built perspective. a training facility. That's they the most obvious, tra- like the, yeah, the biggest one is the training that's facility. Been a yes, need and that's so, been known for a long time, and they haven't done it. And yeah, they, and so they have know, laid out. There's only one they, reason. <laughs> yeah, they have laid out the groundwork at this point, and and their from their perspective, the groundwork for the Bethals to sort of push that over the line they say that they have multiple sites sort of lined up we haven't really had an update recently about that but i assume that once the sale goes through there will be more significant talk more likely from the bethals about what that looks like specifically right but that level of of money moving around is the type of thing that the nwsl has come out and said they want for ownership uh stakes and teams right you look at the people that own bay fc a lot of lot of venture capital stuff going on there um billions of dollars moving around or being part of personal wealth is what this league is is at right now so that's more of an insight into who the bethals are what their sort of financial output is is capable of being and and it's high and so the the majority owner or rather the the person who will sort of be in the operating um sense like the front-facing individual who you would say that is the sort of owner of the thorns right is going to be lisa bethal mirage who is the um between the two siblings she's she's the sister and then her brother is going to sort of be a co-owner with her but in in less of a front-facing role um so that is interesting and compelling in that it is somebody who is a female voice at, at the forefront of these board of governors meetings uh and somebody who um, you know, has this experience in sports, uh, and people will get to know more over the next few years and, and see not only what, what she and her brother have to offer, but you know, what their, what their passion is, what their sort of, you know, personal and, and emotional investment is in this club and, and how it grows into the future. There's, there's a lot of things to look at and think about as these new owners take over. Yeah. And, you know, I mean, the, the, the financial prowess is important. That's an important element and they're going to bring a considerable amount of that, especially by NWSL standards, uh, to the thorns. There will be the money. 
available in there uh, if they choose to use it uh, to to have to build the thorns club into one that is very very competitive at the top of NWSL. And I think every indication seems to be that that would be in their interest uh, to be that. Uh, I don't think there's any basis to 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 buy the thorns to operate sort of on a on 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 a modest level uh, because of of the opportunities that are available here in Portland. And so, you know, I think the the reality is is likely to be that there are those incentives to make those investments, and that's important. But that's only part of the equation. Uh, the other part of the equation is going to be how they manage the club. Uh, and, and you know, we, we don't know. And we're going to have to wait and see. Uh, certainly hope for the best. Uh, and I think there, there are reasons for optimism. Uh, but we're going to have to wait and see. Uh, and so hopefully, uh, you know, they are getting boots on the ground, so to speak, relatively soon to start the process of building out that team that's going to actually run the club and set that direction. Um, because there are a lot of decisions and there's a lot of progress that needs to be made very, very quickly uh, that they're not going to have a ton of runway to, to make. So we'll see. What is your perspective on on the sort of power structures that remain in place as this transition happens? Um, because because a lot of fans have expressed concern to me on, on this front, and it's something that I, I think definitely merits discussion, is the idea that Yes, this team will absolutely be a separate business entity uh, once the Bethals fully take over, have sort of set up their front office the way they want it, um, and the soccer ops and everything else. But a power structure obviously will remain in place in that the lessees of Providence Park remains Peregrine Sports. And and the Merritt has come out and said publicly that he is committed to to giving a good deal to the thorns in terms of utilizing Providence Park to play their games. The thorns players still want to play there. Um, they want there to be a grass field, but they still want to play in that venue and and their fans are are putting butts in seats and filling that place up um, in a way that is extremely unique and special and they deserve no less than that in terms of the the size of of a stadium even if they were to somehow get their own in the future um what do you think though of that power structure that remains where Merritt Paulson does not own the Portland Thorns but he and his his entity in Peregrine Sports still sort the of, landlord right still are still the landlord yeah i i think we're just going to have to wait and see how it plays out uh, you know, obviously there is going to be some transitional time in which there is figuring out how the business structures between the two clubs are going to work. Uh, obviously, there's going to be some time in figuring out how that landlord subtenant relationship is going to work. Uh, and and all of those things, I you know, I think it could very well be something that is largely a non story. Uh, if it's done right and done well, it could very well be something that that doesn't you know, have have big implications on the direction of the Thorns in the future and that the Thorns get, get to continue to to play in Providence Park, which is really the only viable place for them to play uh, in the Portland area. Uh, and that that remains a good place for them. Uh, but I think you could also foresee futures in which that's more problematic. Uh, and and it's more of a challenge for uh, for the, the Bethal family and for the Thorns as a club. So I, I don't think there's a good – I understand people's questions about it and people's even concerns about it. Uh, I just don't think there's a good way to look into a crystal ball 
to see how that's going to play out because it's going to depend on a lot of things that frankly we don't have a ton of visibility into and we will know more on on the nature of the sale on the, the price which has has been discussed a bit in the past by by folks close to the situation back when Merritt announced the sale there had been talks from folks in the know about something upwards of 65 million dollars which would be um significant for sure but how that compares to the rest of NWSL. Yeah, exactly. Given what I think is going to happen in in women's soccer. So yeah, yeah, there's a bargain. Yeah, that would be a major bargain, I think, given the direction that that NWSL is going. And I'm sure that people with investment expertise in particular the sports realm and the Bethals can can see that, right? Yeah. Like that's that's Uh, absolutely the future. Here's the thing. Invest in women's sports, print money. That's it. Invest. And it's going to and print money that that's how it's going to go for these investors who are getting in at this time and who are ambitious and growth oriented um, in in running these teams and in running these leagues. So invest in women's sports, print money. Yeah, it's it's really remarkable. I think what we've seen over the last couple of years with NWSL in particular and something that I'd, I'd like to see with other you know, sports leagues like the WNBA and, and others where, you know, it shouldn't be a scenario where Caitlin Clark is taking a pay cut coming out of Iowa from her <laughs> NIL money to, to play in WNBA. Right. Like there, there are a lot of limiting factors that exist there. Um, and and that's, you know, the, that's all part of investing is, yeah. is setting up the structures in order to reward excellent players who create value. Uh, that's, that's all part of investing. Uh, and if you're truly being ambitious in the way that, that you're investing, uh, I think we've seen enough to have a high degree of confidence that that is going to be a very, very profitable venture, um, for those who are smart, uh, about it. And for those who do it right, you know, don't be, don't be in the New York Mets. Um, but, but we've seen enough to know that, and we've seen these values now increase enough in the last few years to know that if you're a, a, a competent and ambitious investor, uh, it is looking like a very, very, very good investment. So, uh, come, come do that, come, come invest, uh, and be ambitious about it because that's going to work out well. And I think there are a lot of good examples within our own country of maybe what not to do. The approach country, the, it will the world. Yes. Well, I mean, I was thinking obviously. Smaller. Okay. <laughs> in the country, in the United States of America, there's a there's State, a men's county city block. <laughs> There's a there's a men's soccer league that is facing a great deal of criticism, and I, I maybe want to have this be the the little touchstone we end on here. That is facing a lot of criticism for uh, its its attempt now to to try and make the MLS Next Pro teams participate in the U.S. Open Cup, and and how that runs counter to maybe the the purported care for growth of soccer in this country. Um, it's faced a lot of really strong, and I, I think accurate criticism for how it's handled this. And now this morning, uh, right before we recorded this podcast, us soccer was basically like, Nope. (laughs) So that's going to be a a fight on its hands, which we figured might be the case, but is, is interesting in and of itself. Uh, I think that is a good example for maybe the NWSL, which I'm sure sees itself as a, as a strong partner with MLS in a lot of different ways, but 
that's an example, perhaps, in the perspective of some of what not to do. Two Grinches so far for me this holiday season. Uh, the first is whoever the genius was who decided to design wrapping paper with glitter on it. Um, <laughs> like, honestly, might be a serial killer. Uh, just like, I mean, can, it, like glitter is, is something to be avoided. Uh, it's just it, it's a bad substance. <laughs> like it, it's something to be avoided. I'm with you. I'm anti glitter. So. But you know, like usually that's fairly easy, right? Like just say no. <laughs> if somebody's like, "Hey, do you want this glitter?" The answer is no. I don't. Um, and you can you can walk away and 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 not not deal with it. But like you, if you get a a gift that's wrapped in wrapping paper that has glitter on it, this may have happened to me. Uh, there's nothing you can do. Like right, you like you're socially bound. You can't you can't reject that very thoughtful gift because you don't want to open the glitter wrapping paper for fear of turning into like the, the kid from Charlie Brown. That's like, just that's always like got the cloud of dirt around him, but like that with glitter, um, because that's, what's going to happen if you open the gift, but you can't like turn it back. So you're, you're stuck. And so, so Grinch number one is whoever, uh, whoever designed wrapping paper with like glitter stuff on it, the like, yeah, not good. Grinch number two is the people, uh, in MLS who decided to, to basically, in in as many words, pull MLS and MLS players and MLS teams effectively out of the U.S. Open Cup. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. Uh, short-sighted and selfish. And that's a sentiment that I, I hear from a great deal of people, uh, not just on the internet, which as we know can be a bubble, but in real life, when you talk to people who care about soccer in this community and in other communities around the country, uh, they they are frankly disgusted by this move. They see it as cynical. They see it as greedy. Um, and, you know, I, I as a journalist cover these things with a, a tremendous and relentless amount of objectivity. But I'm inclined to agree with these people when I hear those things because it's so like brazenly ridiculous. This this these type of decisions, uh, and then sort of framing them as like trying to to you know give young players opportunities to develop. Look, MLS Next Pro don't, is don't a great. Don't on a, my leg and tell me it's raining. Yeah, it's a great idea in theory. Like the idea of, of building out these academy systems in this way and having them compete at a high level. But come on, man. Like the evidence is not there that 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 is even the case yet. And how would the U.S. Open Cup further contribute to that in almost any way? I mean, what what's happening here is is to me a, an idea of trying to sort of control the narrative and marketing about about soccer in the United States, right? It's it's the idea that. I mean, the messy documentary is a good example on Apple TV, right? That if you watch that, you you see a lot of really cool stuff, but not even a breath about the U.S. Open Cup and and their run, which is noteworthy, I think, when you talk about what the sort of potential agendas are here. It's a hit. <laughs> I mean, like MLS is putting a hit out on the U.S. Open Cup. Right. And you understand why they want to open up the dates. Uh, they want to they, they, they want to be able to schedule league games and leagues cup games and those sorts of things and things that will make them more money in the dates that they otherwise have to schedule U.S. Open Cup games for. But it's also the tournament that has the most history in the United States. It's the tournament uh, that that does allow sort of inter tier uh, competition. It's a, it's the kind of tournament that is common in 
in, in and uh, present in every single major uh, uh, country, sort of soccer playing country uh, that I know of. Um, and it very much looks like MLS is, is, is putting a hit down on it so that it can take more of the pie for itself. I, I don't know how to interpret it otherwise. And, and don't tell me that it's, that it's for player development. That's, that's ridiculous. That, that is an explanation that fails on its face um, and is the kind of thing that when you see somebody say it, uh, you know that they're not saying it in good faith because it just doesn't make sense. You have a little news to share, sir. You join an exclusive club that on this podcast, there was previously only one member. That's true. Of, of engaged people. <laughs> yes. Chris Reifer is engaged, ladies and gentlemen. Thank My you. gosh. Yes, what a day. Very excited. Very excited. Didn't happen today, to be clear. No, um, it did not so happen many today. Many days ago. Uh, but yeah, thank you. Uh, we're, we're very excited. Congratulations, sir. Thanks, pal. We are so happy for you and Jackie. It's going to be a heck of a wedding. All the Timbers players are going to be there. Zero. Zero will be there. <laughs> <laughs> Not a single one. No, there won't. Uh, Char is not going to do the do the. That, you're, um, you're confusing, you know, my upcoming wedding with Sebastian Blanco's wedding, which looks like it was like the party of the century. Dude, Congratulations to was... them, by the way. Uh, very happy uh, for them and their family to be able to take that step. The Instagram uh, videos look; it just looks insane. Yeah, that was an immaculate event. They had like a really famous like Latin pop star performing. Yeah, um, there was a. a I mean the the flower setup up there was immaculate. The 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 star studded guests of Timbers lore and of other other Argentine soccer lore that was something else. As best I can tell, the second biggest party in Argentina this year, uh, second only to when Argentina won the World Cup. But seriously, <laughs> congratulations to them. It's a party uh, that, that that they are worthy of, uh, and celebrating them and their family. So yeah, I, I just love stories like that that you know allow us to to see these athletes as as more than just athletes right as as these human beings that are making these wonderful memories with the people that they love and and seba is is you know to to speak to seba he's a genuinely good guy and who, he gave a lot to this city so to see him happy and and partying his butt off like that at his wedding uh with with the people he loves was was really heartwarming um so that'll wrap it up for us here on Soccer Made in Portland. Um, as we wrap up this year, I want to thank everyone who has listened to this podcast over the last couple of years. I want to thank Chris Reifer for his continued candid commentary on all of these issues. <laughs> um, some Somebody who I, I think is as clear-eyed and full-hearted uh, of a of a co-host as as one could find um and did, did a great job contextualizing a lot of a lot of the stuff that we've covered over the last couple of years so thank you to everybody for listening and, and, we and, will... and thank you as well thank you for, yeah. for for not only the podcast every week or so in the off season leaning on the so uh but also for your journalism throughout the year uh the coverage is important both in terms of the everyday stuff about games and and trades and all of that kind of stuff but also in covering the club uh coverage is in the end good for the club even when that they may not necessarily like it uh it, it is good to have both accountability and also to have discussion the worst thing that could possibly be said uh about the portland timbers or the portland thorns there's nothing at all um uh, 
And uh, it's not only important that people are saying things, but that people are, are in good faith doing their due diligence and, and, and following the club. Uh, and and when things are good, saying that things are good. And when things are less good, saying that things are less good. The, the, the truth is helpful, and, and we appreciate all of your efforts in bringing the truth to us. Thank you, man. Appreciate you. Appreciate everybody. And we will catch you later.